Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 33 of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler, brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. In last week's episode, we broke down a very important summer during a very important year in the history of baseball, known as Long Gone Summer. We talked about how Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire saved baseball from the brink of extinction, really, due to the frustration of the fans that came directly from the strikes and the lockdowns in 1994 and 1995. Today, however, we're going to talk about a couple of teams that were only around one or two or three seasons before they were either absorbed by another team or relocated elsewhere. So, let's get into it. The first team that I want to talk about came out of Seattle about eight years before the Mariners moved into the Kingdome to give Seattle its current baseball team. In 1969, a man by the name of Dewey Soriano set out to create a brand new franchise to join the MLB American League. Soriano was a former pitcher and general manager for the Seattle Rainiers, who are now known as the Tacoma Rainiers, which is the current AAA affiliate for the Mariners. The creation of the team had a really rocky start, one that may have been a bit of foreshadowing. You see, Soriano had to ask William R. Daly, who was the owner of the Indians at the time, to underwrite a good chunk of the purchase price for the team. Now, Daly had already considered moving the Indians to Seattle, so having a claim in the team was good for him. Well, that and there was also a very nice 47% stock that Soriano sold to him for helping out with the team, so he was making a lot of money. Therefore, Daly was the team's largest shareholder and even became chairman of the board while Soriano remained as the team president. But this wasn't the only issue the budding team ran into. MLB decided that the Pilots could not join the major leagues by themselves, as the odd number of teams would throw off the schedule and the playoffs and so on and so forth. So in turn, MLB decided that they couldn't join the league until 1971, which would be the year that the Kansas City Royals would join the American League. Interestingly enough, however, this date was moved up to 1969, due to some pressure from a Missouri senator by the name of Stuart Symington, who had pushed to get the Royals and the Pilots into the league as soon as possible. So, although it was completely out of their control, the Pilots were now in a time crunch in order to get everything that they needed to do in order to have a competitive baseball club by the start of the 1969 season. Oh, and... uh did I mention that the Pilots had to pay a $1 million due to the Pacific Coast League as compensation because they were promoted to the major leagues? Yeah, not much was going well for them. They were already losing a lot of money. But by the 1969 season, the Pilots were ready to take the field. They played at six Stadium a converted minor league stadium that was previously the home of the, well, I guess now destroyed, Seattle Rainers. The Pilots joined the American League West with the Royals, 
to build up a strong division alongside the Minnesota Twins, who won the division, by the way, that year, the Oakland Athletics, the California Angels, and the Chicago White Sox. They played under manager Joe Schultz, who was a coach for the St. Louis Cardinals, where he helped his team win three National League pennants and two world championships. Now, I know that that sounds like a pretty impressive resume, because it is, but with the Pilots, this would be the first time that he would be acting as the head manager. Now, although players said that they liked him, Schultz was known for two things primarily, his rather creative cursing and his questionable decisions as a manager. Once the Pilots relocated, Schultz lost his job and coached once again with the Royals and then the Detroit Tigers before he retired. And I feel like that really starts to paint a pretty clear picture of how this team turned out. In their one and only season, the Pilots went 64-98-1, with the one tie coming on game 143 when the game couldn't be decided after 10 innings were played. The 64-win, 98-loss, and one-tie record put the Pilots in dead last, four games behind the fifth-place White Sox, and only a game and a half above the worst record in baseball. And looking through the lineup, you can kind of see why. The team's total batting average came out to a 234. Their best hitter, Mike Hegan, actually had a pretty decent year hitting 292 with 78 hits in 95 games. But most of the starters, like Tommy Davis, Don Mincher, and John Donaldson, couldn't find a lot of success at the plate, hitting just over 230 for the most part. Their starting pitchers for the Pilots struggled as well, with the Pilots ace Gene Brabender going 13-14 and 14 with a 436 ERA and 40 games pitched. Fred Tabbitt had the best ERA of all the starters with a 416 ERA in the 25 games that he worked, but even he was not safe from the amount of runs and hits that other teams would just continue to pile on. The best record on the team actually came from the Pilots' closer, Diego Segu, who was in his eighth year in the major leagues at the time. Segu went 12-6 with a 3.35 ERA and 12 saves. Now, although he did give up 127 hits and 62 runs in his 142 and a third innings pitched, it was enough to have him be the main guy in the bullpen for the Pilots. Now, it's not really a huge surprise that an expansion team struggled in their first year in the big leagues, but that wasn't really the problem. You see, one of the biggest problems that faced the team was that the stadium that they played in was just too small. I mean, although Six Stadium was at the time called one of the best ballparks in minor league baseball, it only held 30,000 people. And that was after the expansion. People just weren't really going to the games. Only 677,944 total fans showed up to see the Pilots play which was the 20th highest total in the 2014 league. The Pilots had asked for another stadium to be built, but the project was put to a halt. However, it was eventually restarted um, to become the Kingdom just a few years later. But at this point, the Pilots were just hemorrhaging money. 
Daly refused to give the pilots any more money, and it became pretty clear that a new owner would have to step in, with a brand new ballpark, if the team were to stay alive. And this is where Bud Selig stepped in. Selig, who was a former car salesman and Milwaukee Braves owner, decided that he wanted to bring baseball back to Milwaukee. So, Soriano sold the pilots to Selig for $10.8 million, and just like that, after one season in the major leagues, the Seattle Pilots were now the Milwaukee Brewers. The Brewers would, for the most part, keep the colors of the Pilots, who had navy blue, gold, and white as their main colors. Although, later on into the 2000s, the Brewers would go with a much darker blue and a slightly more yellowy gold. But still, they did what they could to pay homage to the team that only played a single season in the big leagues. The next team that I want to talk about is much cleaner than the last one. On October 17, 1960, the National League granted an expansion franchise to the Houston Sports Association, giving them an option for a Major League Baseball team to play in the 1962 season. The initial formations of the team were a little bit shaky for the Colt 45s as well, as the Houston Sports Association had to either make a deal with or completely buy out the Houston Buffaloes, which was a minor league team, in order to obtain these quote-unquote territorial rights so that they could play in the Houston area. After much negotiation, the Houston Sports Association purchased the Houston Buffaloes on January 17, 1961. Now, at this point, you might be wondering how the Houston Colt 45s got their rather interesting name. Well, you see, the name was chosen after a Name the Team contest was held in the Houston area, and was eventually won by a William Irving Netter, who chose the name since the Colt 45 name was so well known as the gun that won the West. So, you know, pretty interesting. The 1962 season would be the Colts' best year, even though they went 64-96-2. The new expansion team, much like the Pilots, struggled pretty heavily against the National League division, finishing 8th in the field of 10 teams. Their manager, Harry Kraft, was the first manager in Houston's Major League history after he moved to Houston from Chicago, where he had helped to lead the Chicago Cubs in Phil Wrigley's College of Coaches. Now, if you've never heard of this rather unorthodox College of Coaches way of running a team, Wrigley decided to not have a permanent manager, but would rather instead rotate the head coach job among all of the coaching staff. This, of course, didn't work, and Kraft decided to just leave because of it. Kraft would coach for the Colts for all three years and would lead the Colts to 196 wins, 288 losses, and two tie overall record. So, a 420 record overall. Some rather notable players that came out of this squad include Turk Farrell, who went 10 and 20 with a 302 ERA in 1962, Hull Woodchick, who went 11 and 9 with a 197 ERA in 1963, and Bob Bruce, who went 15-9 and with a 276 ERA in 1963. 
So, as you can tell, pitching wasn't as much of a problem for this team. Well, not as much as the offense. In 1962, the team hit 246 with 1,370 hits and 105 home runs. This, by far, was the best offensive year that the Colts would have. In 1963, the bats went cold, as the team slugged 220 with just 1,184 hits and only 62 home runs in the 162-game season. 1964 would only be a bit better, as the team would hit 229 with 1,214 hits and 70 home runs. So, better, but not a lot better. All this time, the Colts had been playing at Colt Stadium, which was another just sort of temporary home for the Colts as the Astrodome was being built just a block away. This park, much like the Pistols' sixth stadium, only sat 33,000, a small number compared to the Astrodome's 67,925 seats. So, by the end of the 1964 season, the Colt 45s would move to the Astrodome, hoping that the new stadium, and the new name, would change the team for better. On December 1st, 1964, the team announced that their name would change from the Colt 45s to the Astros. Now, there is some significance behind the name change, as the name of the team, and actually the name of the stadium as well, honored Houston's position at the real center of the nation's new space program. You see, NASA opened the manned spacecraft center, which is now the Johnson Space Center, in 1961, just three years before. So, the team decided that a name change to honor such a feat was well-deserved. However, as you might have guessed, the name change, and the new stadium, yeah, didn't really help the Astros' record. From 1965 to 1968, the Astros finished in 9th place, 8th place, 9th place, and 10th place. Actually, it wasn't until 1972 that the Astros finished above 500, when they won 84 of their 153 games that they played that season. The closest that they came to a winning record before that was 1969, when they finished 81-81 and in their first year after joining the National League West. Since the start of baseball's modern era, around 1960, the Colt 45s and the Seattle Pilots were the only two teams that experienced this weird couple-year growing pains era, before becoming the Houston Astros and the Milwaukee Brewers. No other teams went through as drastic of changes like these two teams did. I mean, the Los Angeles Angels are probably the closest, but even they played as such before changing their name to the California Angels, which then in turn would eventually circle its way back to the Los Angeles Angels that we have today. But honestly, it's been fun just taking a look back at these old teams and seeing what could have been. I mean, imagine if the pilots never went broke and had Ken Griffey Jr. lighting up the kingdom as a pilot. Or having Yuli Gurriel and Jose Altuve hitting absolute bombs out of Minute Maid Park as a Colt 45. I mean, there's so many weird and interesting what-ifs in baseball, of which this is just another page in the history book.
So in next week's episode, we're going to start a brand new trend and go through each division in a search for the best player on every team in every division for the history of that team. So be sure to tune in and see if it's who you would guess. Thank you for listening.